This morning, again, I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Grateful for vacation. Grateful to Ashton and Dan for leading you well in worship uh, over this past couple of weeks. I was able to watch online and see um, and be with you guys from a distance, and it was fantastic. Our blast weekend that was last weekend was glorious, and uh, it was just an incredible thing. We're going to see the fruit of that weekend uh, and celebrate that in just a little while. But uh, I hate to tell you, but you already know we're kind of saying goodbye to summer, right? And you're, yeah, well, some people are happy about that. Some people are not so happy about that. And um, just in reflecting over that and thinking about that, I, I feel like the Lord has laid uh, this message on my heart, this passage for us to study this morning that I think might be a good reminder as we return sort of to our school year, kind of transition out of the summer. And two, I also want our students and our kids that were a part of camp this summer and a part of BLAST and a part of Windshade Camps and all those things to, to really think about how what we're going to study today applies to the kind of experiences we have uh, over the summer at camps and things like that. So um, I want us to go right to the text. Um, as quickly as we can, because I want us to talk about, I want to try to explain what's going on in the text to you, and then I want us to reflect a little bit and say, what does that mean? What, how can this, how does this apply to us today? We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning, um, but before we dive into chapter 9, I actually want you to turn in your Bibles to chapter 8. We're going to look back a little bit before our main text, because to understand, remember, context is so important when you're reading the Bible. So to understand what's really happening in chapter 9, we got to go back and take a look at a little bit of what was going on in chapter 8. Um, in chapter 8, if you look in your Bible, we're not going to put it on the screen. Chapter 8 is not going to be up there. But um, if you just follow along in your Bibles, if you look in verse 27, verses 27 through 30, is what we call Peter's great confession. It's that moment where Jesus is with his disciples and he's beginning to try to prepare them for the cross. And he asks them the question, who does everybody say that I am? Who, who, what are some of the rumors, guys? And they begin to say, well, some people say you're this, some people say you're that. But Peter, Peter speaks up in boldness and he says, in Mark, he says, you are the Messiah. And the other gospel writers say that he says, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And this was a high point in Peter's life. When we study and look at all of the moments in Peter's life, Peter's got some, some low moments, right? He's got some embarrassing moments. He's got some times when he didn't get it. But this one, this was a high point. This was an understanding that he was coming to saying, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. That's in verses 27 through 30 in Mark's gospel, chapter 8. But then if you look at verse 31... Because Peter professes and says, you are the Messiah, Jesus then begins to go beyond what, is, what his identity is to what his mission and what his purpose is. And Jesus begins to talk to them about suffering. And he says, because I'm the Messiah, part of my mission is that I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. I'm going to be killed but I'm going to raise, be raised to life again on the third day. And for some reason, Peter, when he, hear, when he heard that I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die, Peter quit listening, I think. Peter quit listening because immediately, what does Peter reply to Jesus when Jesus says these things are going to have to happen? Peter says, uh-uh, 
No way, Jesus. No, 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 no. Stop saying that. That cannot happen, Jesus. We can't let that happen. We can't let you be killed. The kingdom's not going to come if you're killed. You can't, we can't do that. And then if you look in verse 33, what does Jesus say back to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. Okay, very quickly in Mark's gospel, does Peter go from a highlight moment to, to like the agony of defeat? You know what I'm talking about? Like the wild world of sports he's been through. There's the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. He very quickly goes from one to the other. He's at a high point, and then very quickly Jesus is, is saying, get behind me, Satan. He says, Peter, you're not thinking about God's concerns but human concerns. He says, Peter, you're all wrapped up in what you think the kingdom is. You're all wrapped up in your feelings and your relationship with me. And you're saying things that you're, you're, you're going to make it more. I love you. You're going to make it even more difficult for my humanity to be obedient to the Father by saying that these things shouldn't happen. These things have to happen, Peter. Hush. Don't say these things. Get behind me. Such a drastic change for Peter. He embraces the identity of Jesus, but then immediately in Mark's gospel, he's rebuking the purpose for which Jesus came. And I think Peter is like a lot of Christians, a lot of modern-day Christians. Peter wanted the kingdom, but he didn't want the discomfort. He wanted the kingdom of God to come, but he didn't want the difficulty. That went with it. And Jesus says, it's necessary, Peter. It has to happen this way. So Peter, Jesus knows this about Peter. He knows that the disciples are struggling. And so now I want you to look at verse 34 in Mark chapter 8. And see how Jesus speaks to the disciples after this rebuke of Peter. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 says, Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. These are hard, difficult words for the disciples to hear. These are hard words for Peter to hear. He's saying to them, the kingdom is coming. I've come to do what's necessary for the kingdom to come. But, but it's about to get really, 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 really hard. And you're going to go through things that you've never gone before. But if you want to be a part of the kingdom, you've got to take up your cross. And he's, and he's already, he, he's, he's, he's given them hints, images of, of the cross that he was going to be uh, taking up for them. So these are the conversations that are sort of the background for what we're going to read in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is really what we want to talk about. But you have to go back to chapter 8 and see the nature of these conversations between especially Peter and Jesus as we get into chapter 9. So now I want you to flip over and go to the beginning of Mark's 
Gospel chapter 9, and I'm going to start in verse 2. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Now, after these things, verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. <laughs> now let's stop right there for a minute. So after these discussions, after this revelation of Jesus' suffering and the cross that's coming, he takes Peter, James, and John, and we know that there's this um, inner circle, this close relationship between Jesus and these three. And we read a lot of miracles in the Gospels. We read lots of miraculous things that Jesus did. Some, some before just his disciples and some before the masses. But this is a particular one that is perhaps the greatest miracle other than the resurrection. Besides the resurrection, this is perhaps the greatest miracle in the Gospels. And it's, and it's for these three to see. This event is not only in Matthew's, Mark's gospel, but it's also in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. And each of the gospel writers give us different details about the story. So we're using Mark as our main text, but from time to time I'm going to share with you details that Matthew adds to his account and that Luke adds to his account to help us understand it. So again, we know Jesus had this special relationship with them and he, he takes them aside both, I think, because of his relationship, his close relationship with, with them, but also Jesus knew that for the testimony of the truth to be credible in that day, you had to have witnesses. And how many witnesses did the law say you had to have for a testimony to be credible? Two or three witnesses. And so he takes... This isn't something that, that is for everybody to see, but it's something that, that is to be known but he only wants these three to see it. So he takes them up onto the mountain. And it says he, Mark says he was transfigured in front of them. Now we may not know really what that word means, but that Greek word is the Greek word that we get our English word metamorphosis from. It means that he changed. It's a radical transformation in appearance. A change on the outside that originates from the inside. And so all of a sudden, as they're up on this mountain, Jesus takes on an appearance that none of them have ever seen before. Jesus takes on an appearance that no one on earth had ever seen before. And you get a little frustrated with Mark. Mark's gospel is, is like the, the short one. And Mark's not into a lot of detail. Mark just, just, you know, cuts it to the chase. But right here, you want to go... All, you, all Mark has to say is he was transfigured before them. And he talks about his clothes. He, he says, and I think it's funny. I don't know, did you chuckle a little bit when you read that? And he says, his clothes became dazzling white. So white, whiter than any launderer could ever get them. Like moms probably have flashbacks of the days when your kids played sports. They played football and baseball and they came home with those white pants, right? 
And you had to try to get them clean. And you did everything you could. You bleached those jokers. You did everything you could to try to get those pants clean. And, and you could never get them to look the way they did when you bought them in the store. You just, you just couldn't do it. And, and Luke, I just think it's funny how he makes that, that analogy. And he says, there's no launderer. And I don't know what kind of launderers they had. Maybe, maybe Mark just didn't have good luck with dry cleaners back then. Maybe he just, maybe he couldn't find one that could get his clothes clean. But but he says, there's nobody that can make them as white. Now, also think about their clothes. Like Jesus' clothes, these guys didn't live in the, in the accommodations that we live in. They were outside. They lived in a desert culture. They, they were walking on dirt roads. They were de- their clothes, for anybody to have had stark white clothes at all in that culture would have been crazy. Unrealistic. But Mark says there's something about the change in Jesus' appearance that his clothes were were more white than anybody. If somebody had taken them and just bleached them over and over and over and did everything they could to them, they could have never been as white as what they saw in that moment. Now, I want to tell you, in this metamorphosis or this change that happened in Jesus, it's very important for us to understand that Jesus' nature did not change at all. It's not the nature of Jesus that changed. It was the appearance of Jesus before them that changed. Because what we know about Jesus is Jesus is fully God, right? Jesus was full, fully divine every minute that he spent on this earth. And there are heresies and there are other teachings and other religions that will tell you different. But don't believe it. The truth of God's word is the full divinity and the full humanity of Jesus. 100% both. And neither one of those things diminished. But in this moment, what was happening in the incarnation is Jesus held the full divinity of God, but it was veiled by his humanity. So Jesus was never less divine than he always was. It was just covered up with the cloak of humanity. And what was happening in this moment for Peter, James, and John is that that veil of Jesus' humanity that was covering his glory for just a moment was pulled back. The humanity of the incarnation and they, and they were able to see Jesus in a glorified state similar to what he would be after the resurrection. The glory that he had before he was even created, before he was even made and, and birthed, before he took on a human form, they saw his glory. And, and, and even that glory that they saw in that moment was still somewhat veiled because we know if we go back to Exodus 33, what request did Moses make of God in Exodus 33? He said, show me your glory, God. And God's reply to Moses was, I can't. Because if you saw the fullness of my glory face to face, if I looked you in the face, Moses, you would die. Because God's holiness is so supreme we could not behold God in his glory face to face. And so he, he says to Moses, I will let you see me. My glory will pass before you, but I'm going to hide you, Moses, and I'm going to cover you with my hand, and I'm going to pass by and let you see the backside of me because that's all you can handle. That's all you can take. And so similar in that moment, that full divinity of God that was in Exodus 33 was present in Jesus. Because he's the incarnation. And so God had veiled that glory in the humanity of Jesus. And in this moment, 
that veil that covered the glory of Jesus was pulled back for them for just a moment. And they saw something in Jesus they had never seen before. He looked different. The form that they saw was nothing that they could have communicated fully. And even though Mark, I think maybe part of the reason Mark just says he was transfigured before them was because Mark couldn't come up with words to describe exactly everything that he saw. And the best he could come up with was this thing about his white the launderer couldn't get his clothes that white. They were so white. If we look in the other Gospels, I want to show you in Luke. In Luke 9, 29, Luke comments about Jesus' appearance here. And he says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. You guys have seen that before. You've seen streaks of lightning in the sky. That's the kind of bright white brilliance that Luke depicts what they saw that day. And it says it wasn't, and Luke says it wasn't just his clothes, it was his face. It was shining so bright. Matthew in chapter 17, verse 2, in Matthew's account of the story, he says there, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Everybody at some point has tried to look at the sun, right? Can't do that, can you? Not for very long anyway. Or without something to veil or cover, some kind of glasses or special. Even when there's some kind of uh, solar eclipse that's going on, you've got to, you've got to get these special glasses because it'll damage your eyes. Matthew says that his face shone like the sun. It was It was so bright they could barely look at it. But it was recognizable enough that they knew it was Jesus. And so even in this state, it wasn't the full veil was taken away because if the full veil was taken away and they saw Jesus in his 100% glory, they would have died right there on the spot. But, but God shows them this. And the, and the light, the white light that they describe represents the supreme glory and the purity and the holiness of Jesus. So then, not just did they see Jesus in this full radiance of his glory, but then they see Moses. And then it wasn't just Moses that was there with him. It was, it was Elijah there. And the three of them are like having a powwow. They're like talking. They're having like this meeting, this conference between the three of them. And, and you say, well, what's the significance of Moses and Elijah? There, are, there were no two more authoritative, credible witnesses to the glory of Jesus that represented the old covenant than Moses and Elijah. Moses was the most honored leader in the history of Israel. Moses was the one who gave the law to the people. He was the writer of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. He was the one who delivered God's people out of Egypt. There, there was nobody with the clout and the credibility of Moses representing the law. So Moses was, this, was the greatest representation of the law that Jesus said he had come to fulfill, right? And then there was Elijah. Elijah was the most admired, most powerful prophet that Israel had ever seen. And Elijah was possibly one of the greatest defenders of the law. 
Because he spoke against Israel and he prophesied against Israel and he battled idolatry in Israel and he spoke powerfully. And the Bible says Elijah never even died. He just went to be with, with God. So you have the, the two of the most significant figures in the Old Testament there were the glorified Christ. And they're all talking. Now, if we just read Mark's gospel, we would think, man, I wonder what they're talking about. Wouldn't you wonder that? Man, what are they talking about? Well, Scripture tells us. Mark doesn't tell us, but Luke tells us. If you go over to Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, this is what Luke says. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. Verse 31 they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. In this moment of glory, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking about the cross. They're talking about what has to happen. They're talking about the glory of the cross that is coming and what Jesus is doing and how his death and his departure, how his death, his burial, his resurrection was going to accomplish the mission of bringing the kingdom. And they were talking about his departure, his ascension. They were talking about the same things that Jesus was just telling the disciples about in chapter 8. They were talking about the very things that Jesus said, this, this is coming, I have to suffer, I have to die. And that's what they were talking about. They were talking about the very thing that when Peter heard it, he rebuked it and said, no, 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 Jesus, that can't happen. But Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about how it was going to happen and how it must happen. Jesus came to fulfill the law that Moses represented and to fulfill the prophecy of the prophets that Elijah represented and be the deliverer of his people from slavery of sin as Moses had delivered Israel from the slavery in Egypt. But he was going to do it by the cross. That's how Jesus was going to bring the kingdom. And that's what they were talking about. So Peter, James, and John are there and they're beholding this and they're looking and they're, and they're obviously listening. Because they, they're able to give Luke an account of, of what they were talking about. They were only hearers. They weren't participants in the discussion, right? This wasn't, a, this wasn't an open church conference that was going on. This was a meeting between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And they were talking. But leave it to Peter. We go back to Mark. Peter is so enthralled. He's so excited. He's so caught up in this moment that he literally interrupts their conversation. He's, he's that kid. And so he, he speaks up. Go back to Mark chapter 9, our main text, and look at verse 5. It says, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said, well, why did he say this? Mark says in verse 6, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. Here's a good little basic principle for life. If you don't know what to say, don't. Right? Like that's something your mama should have taught you. 
growing up. Your mom and your daddy should have taught you. If you, you know, we've all heard if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. I would add to that. If you're in a place and you don't know what to say, just don't. Just keep your mouth shut. Just don't say anything. If you're like, oh, I don't know what I should say, then be quiet. Peter hadn't figured that out yet. He is so, he is terrified. He is amazed. He is he is um, excited. He's all of these emotions all at once. And he just wants to, oh, I, just, oh, I just want to say something. Hey, Jesus, this is great. This is, this is, this is so good. Look, let's not leave. Let's just, let's make, he says, let's build three like tabernacles and shelters. We'll build one for you. He like called, he's like, let's call the property guys in here. We're going to build one for, for you. We're going to build one for Moses. We're going to build one for Elijah. And we're just going to stay here. Because look at this. This is amazing. He says, it's good for us to be here. Peter's appeal, his request, his interruption of this moment for Jesus shows that a couple of things about Peter. One is that Peter had a desire to stay in the mountaintop moment. And isn't he like us? Peter saw this and said there is nothing better than the perfect union that's before him of the old covenant and the new covenant. They're both unified together. Like in this moment, it's like it's the coming together of all of them. And, and he says there, there's nothing better than that. He wants to stay in the mountaintop moment, but there's something deeper that if we understand fully what's going on and because we understand what was going on in chapter 8. Peter's desire in this moment, the reason he was so excited is because he thought just maybe... This is a way for the kingdom to come that we won't have to go through what Jesus told us about. This, like this is glorious. This is phenomenal. Like what Peter is saying and what Jesus is hearing from Peter is not just, hey, this is great. Let's just sit up here for a while. It's as if Peter is saying, Jesus, this is a better way for the kingdom to come than what you told us before. Can we skip all that stuff you talked about suffering? Can we skip all that you talked about death? Can we skip all that that talked about the cross and you dying and leaving? Like, this is it. This is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. All together, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, the trifecta. Like, this is, this is the greatest. Why don't, why don't we just bring the kingdom right here, right now, just like this? And, and then we won't have to go through all that other stuff. Peter saw the timing. There's actually, if you study the history and the calendar of when this happens, you remember we talked about the Feast of Tabernacles. This is going on during the Feast of Tabernacles. And what was the Feast of Tabernacles a celebration of? It was a celebration of the Exodus. It was a celebration of Moses leading Israel out of Egypt. And so the, Peter's thinking about that too. And he's saying, wow, Moses led them out of Egypt. We're celebrating it. Like, What better time for the Messiah to lead us out of slavery from sin, slavery from Rome. Like, this is perfect. This is perfect timing, Jesus. Let's just do it this way. But then look at what happens while Mark is talking. 
or while, while Peter is talking, and I think this happens while Peter is... Blah, 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 blah. While Peter is saying all these things and he's trying to get all these ideas out and he's saying, so, oh, Jesus, this is great. And he's making plans for how he thinks it should be. Look at what happens in verse 7. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. You know what this was? This was God's rebuke of what Peter was saying. This is, this is God supernaturally. He, 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 there's, the revel, there, there's the three. They're talking about the mission, the plan, the cross, everything that has to happen. Peter is jumping in and he's coming up with this great idea that he thinks is wonderful. And the presence of God, represented by this cloud, comes over them and a voice speaks. In essence, what Peter should have heard was, shut up, Peter. Peter, be quiet. <laughs> Again, Jesus had to tell him that in chapter 8, right? But now here he is opening his mouth. He thinks he understands. He thinks he's got it. But God has to speak up and tell Peter to be quiet. If we combine all the, all the three gospel accounts, they give a slightly different account of what the voice of God said to them in that moment. And if we combine all three of them, this is what God was speaking over them. This is my son whom I love and have chosen. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. What God was saying was, Peter, stop trying to come up with a better way. Stop denying what has already been revealed and what Jesus himself has already shown you. Listen to Jesus. And listen to what he says about his death because that is the only way the kingdom is going to come, Peter. Listen to Jesus. And Matthew says that when the cloud went away, they were alone with Jesus, Mark says. But Matthew says that in that moment, when they realized that the cloud was gone, Moses was gone, Elijah was gone, and it was just them and Jesus, Matthew says that Jesus comes up to them as they're laying on their ground, overcome by the presence of God. And Jesus reaches down and he says, get up. Don't be afraid, he says. Jesus says, don't be afraid, guys. Not so much, not even so much of just don't be afraid of, of what you just saw, but I think what Jesus is saying to them, get up and keep walking with me and don't be afraid of what's coming. Here's the big point for this morning. I got one big point for you, and it's this. The purpose of the glorious moment wasn't just for the moment, but for their movement. Now let me explain to you what that means. If you write that in your notes, and then I want you to I want you to know what it means. The mountaintop moment that they experienced there, and, and you say, well, why did God let them see that? 
is because Jesus knew they were going to need to see that to be able to endure what was coming. It wasn't for the moment. The moment that they were able to behold what they saw was for a purpose. And the purpose was not for them to just sit in that moment. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what had to happen. He knew what they would be enduring. He knew the doubts that they would have. He knew the struggles that they would have. He knew the moments that they might want to quit. And for those moments, he pulled back the veil and said, I want you to see my glory. Because the glory that you see now in this moment will be the glory you see in the end when it's all over. <laughs> it's a promise. It's a, it, it was a promise to them to say, look, you're going to endure some really, really hard things. Don't quit. Don't give up. The power that you need to be able to do what you're going to have to do, you will have it, and I'm going to provide it for you. And if you doubt that and you're not sure about that, here's a picture of the glory that's coming. Here's just a peek of it. It wasn't for them to just sit in the moment of glory. He showed them his glory so that they would be able to keep moving. So that they would be able to keep going. Look at Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. It says this, The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we what? Suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. There was a really important principle in that moment that, that Peter and James and John were to learn that was going to carry them through the leadership that was going to be required of them to help establish Jesus' church. And it was that the glory that's to come doesn't come before the suffering. It doesn't come without the suffering. The suffering is part of the glory. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? I've experienced a lot. I, I won't even say a lot. A few glimpses of the kind of glory not comparable to what these three saw. But I want you to think back to when are those moments in your life that for you, God pulled the veil of His glory back just a little bit and let you see something that you had never, ever, ever seen before. I hope that you have some of those moments because I do. I can remember some of those moments in this church, in this room. I can remember some of those moments. One of my, one of my biggest memories of a moment like that for me was in 2009 as the student pastor here, taking a group to Daytona Beach, the student life camp. And we would always have our devotions out on the beach at night after, after our worship service, but there was a powerful presence of, of the Holy Spirit in the worship service that night. And when we went back to our hotel and we went out to the beach to have our sharing time, I saw something happen that I had never seen happen before, and I have not seen happen like that since. I was in a group of about 30 to 35 teenagers. 
And there's always a few that love to talk, right? And some of y'all were those people who like to talk. But there's always kids in the group who never talk, who never want to share, who and you don't, and, and you just know that. Well, what began to happen was without my prompting, without my, you know, sometimes you have to pull kids along and try to encourage them without any of that. Kids started to open up and share things with the group and, and kids who would have never, ever spoken up and talked began to talk about things that they saw and were beginning to understand as a result of, of the week, as a result of that day. And kids started sharing and talking in a way that I never saw. And then what began to happen was these two or three students would begin to talk and share something. And then from our group, they just got up and kind of walked over here to this part of the beach and they sat down together and they all began to pray. Nobody told them to. They just pulled off together and they began to pray together. And then, and then somebody else in the group, one of those kids that would speak up that never said anything and now they're pouring their heart out, two or three of those kids would get around them and they would go over and they would begin to pray with them. And then all of a sudden there's like three or four of these little groups that are split off everywhere. And now one of the, ones, one of the groups down the beach that are sitting there, all of them are down there singing and they're worshiping together. They're singing songs out loud on a dark beach with no music and these four or five are singing one song. And then maybe these four or five are over here. And that, now they hear them singing. They start to worship the Lord too. But they're singing something different. And, and it was the first time in my life as a student minister that I stood watching my entire youth group. And I looked at Kim. Where's Kim? She's here somewhere. I looked at Kim. There you are. Do you remember this moment? I looked at her. And with tears in my eyes, I said, I don't even need to be here. And I loved it. It was the most glorious thing. It, it was a moment where the glory of God, there were kids beginning to see things about God that they had never seen before. And he was pulling back his glory. It wasn't this bright light. It was in the middle of a dark beach with the moon hanging over. But folks, we got out there and started that time around 10 or 1030 at night. And it was 3 a.m. when we were going back to our rooms. And I don't tell you that. If you know me, you know that emotionalism is something I despise in the church. Any, you can get anybody riled up emotionally and make them think they've had a Holy Spirit experience. And that's not what we're about. That's not what I'm about. That's not what we're about here at this church. But folks, when the Spirit reveals Himself, and when the veil is removed and you see his glory, things happen. And things happen when you take your hands off of them. And I watched and sat there in that moment. And there were kids encouraging other kids. There were kids praying with other kids, worshiping with other kids, leading other kids. And I'm literally just getting to stand back and watching it going, Jesus, how amazing are you? You don't need me. You don't even need me right now. And I just got to sit and watch God do something I'd never seen him do before. And I will never forget that night. Have you ever had a moment like that? Something that you've never seen before and you've never seen since. When we think about camp, when we think about experiences like that, 
from year after year. Many of you, you've had those mountaintop experiences. It might have been at a camp. It might have been here in this church. It might have been somewhere else. What is our tendency to want to do? One of the things this year, this summer, when this group was together at camp, when we were all sitting together and having our group time at the very end, I think Shay was the first one to say it. I don't want to go home. And there's always that sentiment. And when the first person says it, everybody says it. When we, we had an amazing week of camp. And Shay was the first one to speak up. And she said, I don't want to go home. Because she had given her life to Jesus at camp just a few days before. She had experienced the fullness, the glory of God and salvation in her life. And she was so in the moment of seeing God in a way that she had never seen before. She said, I don't want to go home. I want to stay here. Don't we all feel that way when we're in those moments? Don't we wish we could just put up a tent and a tabernacle and stay there and say, let's just live here at camp, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Let's just stay here. If I could have done that on that beach in Daytona in 2009, I, oh, I would have done it. And when it was finally time to go in and we looked at our watches and we're like, what's the point of even going to sleep? Folks, God lets us see glimpses of his glory like that. Not so that we can just sit and camp in them. My prayer is that the students who were a part and the adults who were a part of that moment on that beach in 2009 in Daytona still remember it. And that remembrances of that glory are motivating them and encouraging them and giving them strength to walk through their daily walk with Jesus right now. That's my prayer. Because I remember it often. And when you go through student ministry for 20 years, you need moments like that. When you pastor a church for 20 or 25 years, you need moments like that. Why? So that God can help you remember that there's a, a little glimpse of his glory that he's shown you. And that veil being pulled back and that moment of glory is so that you would have the strength to continue to walk. Because there's a glory that's coming in the end where there won't be any more veil. Nothing else will be hidden. And you're going to see it fully. And that's the hope, and that's the strength where it comes from. And I think we see it both in John and in Peter. I want to share two more passages of Scripture as we wrap up this morning. I think John remembered it because John was on that mountain, Peter, James, and John. If we look in John's gospel, when he was writing his gospel in chapter 1, and hopefully you'll read this verse differently from now on, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we observed his glory, John says. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Folks, I believe with all my heart that when John penned his gospel and he wrote verse 14, he went back to that moment on that mountain. And when he wrote verse 14 and he said, we observed his glory, that wasn't a that wasn't just a, a philosophical statement about the entire life of Jesus. That was John saying, I was on that mountain when God pulled back the veil of Jesus' humanity and I saw his glory with my own eyes. Peter couldn't forget it either. If we go to 2 Peter, 
one of Peter's epistles after the church is established and he's, he's, he's fighting with the church through, through false teaching and trying to encourage them. Look at what he says in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19. For we do not follow, he's writing to the church, we do not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, Peter says. We saw it. He's talking about that moment. Verse 17, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from, to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. That's what God said on the mountaintop. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter is writing to the church through a difficult time, through a hard time. And he's trying to encourage them. And what does, what does he pull from? What moment does he draw from to, to have the strength and the knowledge and the wisdom to lead God's church in this moment? He goes back to that moment of glory on that mountain. And he says, I saw it. We haven't come up with this story. This isn't something that we made up on our own. This is the glory of God that we saw with our own eyes. And we are telling you about it because we were eyewitnesses to it. And you would do good to pay attention to what we tell you. God gives us moments of glory that we will never forget. And I pray that if that's never happened to you, that it will very soon. That there's a moment of the glory of God that you would see. And it would be so miraculous and so... Uh, out of the ordinary, that it'll be something that you never forget. But when that happens, if it hasn't already, when that happens, know God's purpose for that moment is not for you to sit and camp in it. But it's to show you a piece, show you a little glimpse of the glory that's to come later. And so the unforgettable glory that we're talking about this morning is not just those, those moments where the veil... He says, don't forget those moments where I've shown you my glory and let you see a piece of it. But also don't forget the other unforgettable glory is the glory that you've not seen yet. Don't forget that there's a glory coming that is greater than anything you've ever seen, anything that you've ever experienced.